0: Part two of Life in the Iron Mills. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Life in the Iron Mills by Rebecca Harding Davis. Part two. Wolfe, while Deborah watched him, dug into the furnace of melting iron with his pole, dully thinking only how many rails the lump would yield. It was late, nearly Sunday morning. Another hour and the heavy work would be done only the furnaces to replenish and cover for the next day. The workmen were growing more noisy, shouting as they had to do to be heard over the deep clamor of the mills. Suddenly they grew less boisterous, at the far end, entirely silent. Something unusual had happened. After a moment the silence came near. the men stopped their jeers and drunken choruses. Deborah, stupidly lifting up her head, saw the cause of the quiet. A group of five or six men were slowly approaching, stopping to examine each furnace as they came. Visitors often came to see the mills after night. Except by growing less noisy, the men took no notice of them. The furnace where Wolf worked was near the bounds of the works. They halted there, hot and tired. A walk over one of these great foundries is no trifling task. The woman, drawing out of sight, turned over to sleep. Wolfe, seeing them stop, suddenly roused from his indifferent stupor and watched them keenly. He knew some of them—the overseer, Clark, a son of Kirby, one of the mill-owners, and a Dr. May, one of the town physicians. The other two were strangers. Wolfe came closer. He seized eagerly every chance that brought him into contact with this mysterious class that shone down on him perpetually with the glamour of another order of being. What made the difference between them? That was the mystery of his life. He had a vague notion that perhaps tonight he could find it out. One of the strangers sat down on a pile of bricks, and beckoned young Kirby to his side. "'This is hot! With a vengeance! A match, please!' Lighting his cigar. "'But the walk is worth the trouble. If it were not that you must have heard it so often, Kirby, I would tell you that your works looks like Dante's Inferno.' Kirby laughed. "'Yes!' "'Yonder is Farinata himself in the burning tomb,' pointing to some figure in the shimmering shadows. "'Judging from the faces of some of your men,' said the other, "'they bid fair to try the reality of Dante's vision some day.' Young Kirby looked curiously around, as if seeing the faces of his hands for the first time. "'They're bad enough, that's true. A desperate set, I fancy. Eh, Clark?' The overseer did not hear him. He was talking of net profits just then, giving in fact a schedule of the annual business of the firm to a sharp, peering little Yankee, who jotted down notes on a paper laid on the crown of his hat, a reporter for one of the city papers, getting up a series of reviews of the leading manufactories. The other gentlemen had accompanied them merely for amusement. They were silent until the notes were finished, drying their feet at the furnaces, and sheltering their faces from the intolerable heat. At last the overseer concluded with— I believe that is a pretty fair estimate, captain. Here, some of you men, said Kirby, bring up those boards. We may as well sit down, gentlemen, until the rain is over. It cannot last much longer at this rate. Pig metal, mumbled the reporter. Um, coal facilities. Um, hands employed 1200. Bitumen. Um, all right, I believe Mr. Clark. The sinking fund. What did you say was your sinking fund? 1200 hands said the stranger, the young man who had first spoken. "'Do you control their votes, Kirby?' "'Control? No,' the young man smiled complacently. "'But my father brought seven hundred votes to the polls for his candidate last November. No force-work, you understand, only a speech or two to hint to form themselves into a society, and a bit of red-and-blue bunting to make them a flag. The Invincible Ruffs, I believe that is their name. I forget the motto—'Our Country's Hope,' I think.' There was a laugh. The young man talking to Kirby sat with an amused light in his cool gray eye, surveying critically the half-clothed figures of the Puddlers and the slow swing of their brawny muscles. He was a stranger in the city, spending a couple of months in the borders of a slave state to study the institutions of the South—a brother-in-law of Kirby's—Mitchell. He was an amateur gymnast—hence his anatomical eye—a patron, in a blasé way, of the prize-ring, a man who sucked the essence out of a science or philosophy in an indifferent gentlemanly way, who took Kant, Novalis, humbled, for what they were worth in his own scales, accepting all, despising nothing, in heaven, earth, or hell, but a one idea man, with temper yielding and brilliant as summer water, until his self was touched, when it was ice, though brilliant still. Such men are not rare in the States. As he knocked the ash from his cigar. Wolfe caught with a quick pleasure the contour of the white hand, the blood-glow of a red ring he wore. His voice, too, and that of Kirby's, touched him like music—low, even, with cording cadences. About this man Mitchell hung the impalpable atmosphere belonging to the thoroughbred gentleman. Wolfe, scraping away the ashes beside him, was conscious of it, did obeisance to it with his artist sense, unconscious that he did so. The rain did not cease. Clark and the reporter left the mills, the other, comfortably seated near the furnace, lingered, smoking and talking in a desultory way. Greek would not have been more unintelligible to the furnace-tenders, whose presence they soon forgot entirely. Kirby drew out a newspaper from his pocket, and read aloud some article, which they discussed eagerly. At every sentence Wolfe listened more and more like a dumb, hopeless animal, with a duller, more stolid look creeping over his face glancing now and then at Mitchell, marking acutely every smallest sign of refinement, then back to himself, seeing as in a mirror his filthy body, his more stained soul. Never! He had no words for such a thought, but he knew now, in all the sharpness of the bitter certainty, that between them there was a great gulf, never to be passed, never. The bell of the mills rang for midnight. Sunday morning had dawned. Whatever hidden message lay in the tolling bells floated past these men unknown. Yet it was there. Veiled in the solemn music ushering the risen Saviour was a keynote to solve the darkest secrets of a world gone wrong—even this social riddle which the brain of the grimy puddler grappled with madly to-night. The men began to withdraw the metal from the cauldrons. The mills were deserted on Sundays, except by the hands who fed the fires, and those who had no lodgings, and slept usually on the ash-heaps. The three strangers sat still during the next hour, watching the men cover the furnaces, laughing now and then at some jest of Kirby's. "'Do you know,' said Mitchell, "'I like this view of the works better than when the glare was fiercest. These heavy shadows in the amphitheatre of smothered fires are ghostly, unreal. One could fancy these red smouldering lights to be the half-shut eyes of wild beasts, and the spectral figures their victims in the den.' Kirby laughed. "'You are fanciful. Come, let us get out of the den. The spectral figures, as you call them, are a little too real for me to fancy a close proximity in the darkness—unarmed, too." The others rose, buttoning their overcoats and lighting cigars. "'Raining still,' said Dr. May. "'And hard. Where did we leave the coach, Mitchell?' "'At the other side of the works. Kirby, what's that?' Mitchell started back, half frightened, as suddenly turning a corner, The white figure of a woman faced him in the darkness—a woman, white, of giant proportions, crouching on the ground, her arms flung out in some wild gesture of warning. "'Stop! Make that fire burn there!' cried Kirby, stopping short. The flame burst out, flashing the gaunt figure into bold relief. Mitchell drew a long breath. "'I thought it was alive,' he said, going up curiously. The others followed. "'Not marble, eh?' asked Kirby, touching it. One of the lower overseers stopped. "'Coral, sir.' "'Who did it?' "'Can't say. Some of the hands. Chipped it out in off-hours.' "'Chipped to some purpose, I should say. What a flesh-tint the stuff has! Do you see, Mitchell?' "'I see.' He had stepped aside where the light fell boldest on the figure, looking at it in silence. There was not one line of beauty or grace in it—a nude woman's form muscular, grown coarse with labour, the powerful limbs instinct with some one poignant longing. One idea. There it was in the tense, rigid muscles, the clutching hands, the wild, eager face, like that of a starving wolf's. Kirby and Dr. May walked round it, critical, curious. Mitchell stood aloof, silent. The figure touched him strangely. "'Not badly done,' said Dr. May. Where did the fellow learn that sweep of the muscles in the arm and hand? Look at them. They are groping, do you see? Clutching—the peculiar action of a man dying of thirst." "'They have ample facilities for studying anatomy,' sneered Kirby, glancing at the half-naked figures. "'Look,' continued the doctor, at this bony wrist and the strange sinews of the instep—a working woman—the very type of her class." "'God forbid!' muttered Mitchell. "'Why?' demanded May. What does the fellow intend by the figure? I cannot catch the meaning.' "'Ask him,' said the other, dryly. "'There he stands,' pointing to Wolfe, who stood with a group of men leaning on his ash-rake. The doctor beckoned him with the affable smile which kind-hearted men put on when talking to these people. "'Mr. Mitchell has picked you out as the man who did this. I'm sure I don't know why. But what did you mean by it?' "'She be hungry.' Wolfe's eyes answered Mitchell, not the doctor. "'Oh! But what a mistake you have made, my fine fellow! You have given no sign of starvation to the body. It is strong, terribly strong. It has the mad, half-despairing gesture of drowning!' Wolfe stammered, glanced appealingly at Mitchell, who saw the soul of the thing he knew. But the cool, probing eyes were turned on himself now, mocking, cruel, relentless. "'Not hungry for meat?' the furnace-tender said at last. "'What, then, whisky?' jeered Kirby with a coarse laugh. Wolf was silent a moment, thinking. "'I don't know,' he said, with a bewildered look. "'It may be. Somat to make her live, I think, like you. Whisky'll do it in a way.' The young man laughed again. Mitchell flashed a look of disgust somewhere, not at Wolf. "'May!' he broke out impatiently. "'Are you blind? Look at that woman's face. It asks questions of God and says I have a right to know. Good God, how hungry it is!" They looked a moment, then May turned to the mill-owner. "'Have you many such hands as this? What are you going to do with them? Keep them at puddling iron?' Kirby shrugged his shoulders. Mitchell's look had irritated him. "'Ce n'est pas mon affaire. I have no fancy for nursing infant geniuses. I suppose there are some stray gleams of mind and soul among these wretches. The Lord will take care of his own, or else they can work out their own salvation. I have heard you call our American system a ladder which any man can scale. Do you doubt it? Or perhaps you want to banish all social ladders and put us all in a flat tableland? eh, May?" The doctor looked vexed, puzzled. Some terrible problem lay hid in this woman's face, and troubled these men. Kirby waited for an answer, and receiving none, went on, warming with his subject. "'I tell you, there's something wrong that no talk of liberté or égalité will do away. If I had the making of men, these men who do the lowest part of the world's work should be machines, nothing more, hands. It would be kindness. God help them! What are taste, reason, to creatures who must live such lives as that!' He pointed to Deborah, sleeping on the ash-heap. So many nerves to sting them to pain. What if God had put your brain, with all its agony of touch, into your fingers, and bid you work and strike with that? You think you could govern the world better?' laughed the doctor. "'I do not think at all.' "'That is true philosophy. Drift with the stream because you cannot dive deep enough to find bottom, eh?' "'Exactly,' rejoined Kirby. "'I do not think—' I wash my hands of all social problems—slavery, caste, white or black. My duty to my operatives has a narrow limit—the pay-hour on Saturday night. Outside of that, if they cut coral or cut each other's throats—the more popular amusement of the two—I am not responsible. The doctor sighed, a good, honest sigh from the depths of his stomach. God help us! Who is responsible? Not I, I tell you said Kirby testily. "'What has the man who pays the money to do with their soul's concerns more than the grocer or butcher who takes it?' "'And yet,' said Mitchell's cynical voice, "'look at her! How hungry she is!' Kirby tapped his boot with his cane. No one spoke. Only the dumb face of the rough image looking into their faces with the awful question, "'What shall we do to be saved?' Only Wolfe's face, with its heavy weight of brain, its weak, uncertain mouth, its desperate eyes, out of which looked the soul of his class, only Wolfe's face turned towards Kirby's. Mitchell laughed, a cool musical laugh. "'Money has spoken,' he said, seating himself lightly on a stone with the air of an amused spectator at a play. "'Are you answered?' Turning to Wolf, his clear magnetic face. Bright and deep and cold as arctic air, the soul of the man lay tranquil beneath. He looked at the furnace tender as he had looked at a rare mosaic in the morning. Only the man was the more amusing study of the two. Are you answered? Why may look at him—de profundis clamavi, or, to quote in English, hungry and thirsty his soul faints in him. And so money sends back its answer into the depths through you, Kirby. Very clear the answer, too. I think I remember reading the same words somewhere, washing your hands in eau de cologne, and saying, I am innocent of the blood of this man. See ye to it. Kirby flushed angrily. You quote scripture freely. Do I not quote correctly? I think I remember another line which may amend my meaning Inasmuch as ye did it unto one of the least of these, ye did it unto me. Deest? Bless you, man, I was raised on the milk of the word. Now, doctor, the pocket of the world, having uttered its voice, what has the heart to say? You are a philanthropist in a small way, n'est-ce pas? Here boy, this gentleman can show you how to cut coral better, or your destiny. Go on, May." "'I think a mocking devil possesses you to-night,' rejoined the doctor seriously. He went to Wolfe and put a hand kindly on his arm. Something of a vague idea possessed the doctor's brain that much good was to be done here by a friendly word or two. A latent genius be warmed into life by a waited-for sunbeam. Here it was—he had brought it. So he went on complacently. "'Do you know, boy, you have it in you to be a great sculptor, a great man? Do you understand?' Talking down to the capacity of his hearer, it is a way people have with children, and men like Wolfe. "'Do you live a better, stronger life than I, or Mr. Kirby here? A man may make himself anything he chooses.' God has given you stronger powers than many men—me, for instance." May stopped, heated, glowing with his own magnanimity. And it was magnanimous. The puddler had drunk in every word, looking through the doctor's flurry and generous heat and self-approval into his will with those slow, absorbing eyes of his. Make yourself what you will. It is your right." I no?' quietly. "'Will you help me?' Mitchell laughed again. The doctor turned now, in a passion. "'You know, Mitchell, I have not the means. You know if I had, it is in my heart to take this boy and educate him for—the glory of God and the glory of John May!' May did not speak for a moment. Then, controlled, he said, "'Why should one be raised when myriads are left? I have not the money, boy?' to Wolfe shortly. "'Money?' he said it over slowly as one repeats the guest answer to a riddle doubtfully. "'That is it? Money?' "'Yes. Money. That is it,' said Mitchell, rising and drawing his furred coat about him. "'You've found the cure for all the world's diseases. Come, May, find your good-humour and come home. This damp wind chills my very bones. Come and preach your St. Simonian doctrines to-morrow to Kirby's hands. Let them have a clear idea of the rights of the soul, and I'll venture next week they'll strike for higher wages. That will be the end of it." "'Will you send the coach-driver to this side of the mills?' asked Kirby, turning to Wolfe. He spoke kindly. It was his habit to do so. Deborah, seeing the puddler go, crept after him. The three men waited outside. Dr. May walked up and down, chafed. Suddenly he stopped. Go back, Mitchell. You say the pocket and the heart of the world speak without meaning to these people. What has its head to say? Taste? Culture? Refinement? Go!" Mitchell was leaning against a brick wall. He turned his head indolently and looked into the mills. There hung about the place a thick, unclean odour. The slightest motion of his hand marked that he perceived it, and his insufferable disgust. That was all. May said nothing, only quickened his angry tramp. "'Besides,' added Mitchell, giving a corollary to his answer, "'it would be of no use. I am not one of them.'" "'You do not mean,' said May, facing him. "'Yes, I mean just that. Reform is born of need, not pity. No vital movement of the peoples has worked down for good or evil. Fermented, instead, carried up the heaving, cloggy mass. Think back through history and you will know it. What will this lowest deep—thieves, Magdalens, negroes—do with the light filtered through ponderous church-creeds, Baconian theories, Goethe schemes? Some day out of their bitter need will be thrown up their own light-bringer, their Jean-Paul, their Cromwell, their messiah." Bah! was the doctor's inward criticism. However in practice he adopted the theory. For when, night and morning, afterwards, he prayed that power might be given these degraded souls to rise, he glowed at heart, recognizing an accomplished duty. Wolfe and the woman had stood in the shadow of the works as the coach drove off. The doctor had held out his hand in a frank generous way, telling him to—take care of himself, and to remember it was his right to rise. Mitchell had simply touched his hat, as to an equal, with a quiet look of thorough recognition. Kirby had thrown Deborah some money, which he found and clutched eagerly enough. They were gone now, all of them. The man sat down on the cinder road, looking up into the murky sky. To be late, you—will not her come?' He shook his head doggedly, and the woman crouched out of his sight against the wall. "'Do you remember rare moments when a sudden light flashed over yourself, your world, God? When you stood on a mountain-peak, seeing your life's that might have been—' As it is? One quick instant when custom lost its force and everyday usage? When your friend, wife, brother stood in a new light? Your soul was bared, and the grave, a foretaste of the nakedness of the Judgment Day? So it came before him, his life, that night. The slow tides of pain he had borne gathered themselves up and surged against his soul. His squalid daily life, the brutal coarseness eating into his brain as the ashes into his skin. Before these things had been a dull aching into his consciousness. To-night they were reality. He gripped the filthy red shirt that clung, stiff with soot, about him, and tore it savagely from his arm. The flesh beneath was muddy with grease and ashes, and the heart beneath that, and the soul, God knows." then flashed before his vivid poetic sense the man who had left him, the pure face, the delicate sinewy limbs, in harmony with all he knew of beauty or truth. In his cloudy fancy he had pictured a something like this. He had found it in this Mitchell, even when he idly scoffed at his pain. A man all-knowing, all-seeing, crowned by nature, reigning, the keen glance of his eye falling like a sceptre on other men. And yet his instinct taught him that he too— He he looked at himself with sudden loathing, sick, wrung his hands with a cry, and then was silent. When all the phantoms of his heated, ignorant fancy, Wolfe had not been vague in his ambitions. They were practical, slowly built up before him out of his knowledge of what he could do. Through years he had, day by day, made this hope a real thing to himself, a clear projected figure of himself, as he might become. Able to speak to know what was best, to raise these men and women working at his side up with him. Sometimes he forgot this to find hope in the frantic anguish to escape, only to escape, out of the wet, the pain, the ashes, somewhere, anywhere, only for one moment of free air on a hillside, to lie down and let his sick soul throb itself out in the sunshine. But to-night he panted for life. The savage strength of his nature was roused. His cry was fierce to God for justice. "'Look at me,' he said to Deborah, with a low, bitter laugh, striking his puny chest savagely. "'What am I worth, Deb? Is it my fault that I am no better? My fault? My fault?' He stopped, stung with a sudden remorse, seeing her hunchback shape writhing with sobs. For Deborah was crying thankless tears, according to the fashion of women. God forgive me, woman. Things go harder wi' you, nor me. It's a worse share." He got up and helped her to rise, and they went doggedly down the muddy street, side by side. "'It's all wrong,' he muttered slowly. "'All wrong? I do not understand. But it'll end some day.' "'Come home, Hugh,' she said coaxingly, for he had stopped, looking around, bewildered. "'Home, and back to the mill.' He went on saying this over to himself, as if he would mutter down every pain in this dull despair. She followed him through the fog, her blue lips chattering with cold. They reached the cellar at last. Old Wolf had been drinking since she went out, and had crept nearer the door. The girl Janie slept heavily in the corner. He went up to her, touching softly the worn white arm with his fingers. Some bitterer thought stung him as he stood there. He wiped the drops from his forehead and went into the room beyond, livid, trembling. A hope, trifling perhaps, but very dear, had died just then out of the poor puddler's life, as he looked at the sleeping, innocent girl. Some plan for the future, in which she had borne a part. He gave it up that moment, then and forever. Only a trifle perhaps, to us, his face grew a shade paler, that was all. But somehow the man's soul, as God and the angels looked down on it, never was the same afterwards. Deborah followed him into the inner room. She carried a candle, which she placed on the floor, closing the door after her. She had seen the look on his face as he turned away. Her own grew deadly. Yet as she came up to him her eyes glowed. He was seated on an old chest, quiet, holding his face in his hands. Hugh, she said softly. He did not speak. "'Hugh! Did or hear what the man said? Him with the clear voice? Did hor hear? Money! Money! That it would do all?' He pushed her away. Gently, but he was worn out. Her rasping tone fretted him. "'Hugh!' The candle flared a pale yellow light over the cobwebbed brick walls and the woman standing there. He looked at her. She was young, in deadly earnest, her faded eyes and wet, ragged figure caught from their frantic eagerness a power akin to beauty. "'Hew, it is true. Money'll do it. Oh, Hugh, boy, listen till me. He said it true. It is money.' no, Go back. I do not want you here.' Hugh, it is to last time. I'll never wor it her again.' There were tears in her voice now, but she choked them back. "'Here till me only to-night. If one o' to which people would come. Then we herd oft home and give her all her wants. What then say Hugh? What do you mean? I mean money? Her whisper shrilled through his brain. If one oft witch dwarfs would come at a lane moor's to-night and give her money to go out out, I say, out, lad, or to sunshines and to heath grows and to ladies walk in silken gowns, and God stays all to time, or to man lives that talked to us to-night, Hugh knows Hugh could walk there like a king. He thought the woman mad, tried to check her, but she went on, fierce in her eager haste. "'If I were to witch-dwarf, if I had to money, would her thank me? Would her take me out of this place with her and Janie? I would not come into the grand house her would build, to vex her with a hunch, only at night, when the shadows were dark, stand far off to see her?' "'Mad? Yes. Are many of us mad in this way?' "'Poor Deb.' "'Poor Deb,' he said soothingly. "'It is here,' she said suddenly, jerking into his hand a small roll. "'I took it. I did it. Me, me, not her. I shall be hanged. I shall be burnt in hell, if anybody knows I took it. Out of his pocket, as he leaned against bricks. Her nose!' She thrust it into his hand, and then, her errand done, began to gather chips together to make a fire, choking down hysteric sobs. "'Has it come to this?' That was all he said. The Welsh wolf-blood was honest. The roll was a small green pocket-book containing one or two gold pieces, and a check for an incredible amount, as it seemed to the poor puddler. He laid it down, hiding his face again in his hands. "'Hugh, don't be angry with me. It's only poor Deb, hor nose!' He took the long skinny fingers kindly in his. "'Angry? God help me, no!' Let me sleep. I am tired. He threw himself heavily down on the wooden bench, stunned with pain and weariness. She brought some old rags to cover him. It was late on Sunday evening before he awoke. I tell God's truth when I say he had then no thought of keeping the money. Deborah had hid it in his pocket. He found it there. She watched him eagerly as he took it out. "'I must give it to him,' he said, reading her face. Hor knows.' she said with a bitter sigh of disappointment. "'But it is her right to keep it?' "'His right!' the word struck him. Dr. May had used the same. He washed himself and went out to find this man Mitchell. "'His right! Why did this chance word cling to him so obstinately? Do you hear the fierce devils whisper in his ear as he went slowly down the darkening street?' End of Part 2